What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, it's that Memorial Day weekend, and you know how that gets crazy. Uh, I've celebrated the the pre-gaming of that weekend by going into work for a one-on-one meeting. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, it was fine. They didn't say anything bad, so I guess that's a good thing. Uh, and then I went to my daughter's orchestra performance at her school, my youngest daughter, and it was adorable. She even sat right up front. Uh, playing that flute, looking all adorable in her pirate blouse. Uh, somebody in the audience kept, uh, their phone kept going off really loudly, saying that it couldn't find GPS coordinates or it couldn't connect with GPS. And after the third time, I just started cracking up because it was always happening right in the, like a lull, either between music or pieces or, uh, or whatever. And I just kept imagining that it was some guy talking to his friend or girlfriend or something, texting, saying, this music is off the chain. You have got to get down here immediately. Here, I'll send you my coordinates, but I'm serious. You're missing out on something big. And then it would just keep yelling about how I can't find the coordinates. Uh, I was sitting with another parent or a set of parents, a couple. They're married. Uh, And uh, even the husband is laughing because it was just getting ridiculous after a while. Uh, apparently in the elementary school, there's an orchestra teacher that is retiring and they announced it on the stage to all the middle school parents. And there was an audible gasp, which totally cracked me up that they said, uh, just to let everyone know this person's performance will be their final performance in the elementary school. So we're not even seeing them. And, uh, everyone went, (gasps) Like that, which totally cracked me up. So, I mean, apparently this person was just amazing. Uh, like a Mr. Holland's opus in the elementary school. In other news, I have a friend from out of town coming in to come say hi. This person used to live very far away and now lives about an hour away. So this person's going to drive on up and he's going to hang out. And he specifically said that he wants to see me do the podcast, which I thought was really weird. Uh, Maybe from his point of view, it makes sense. This person used to be very involved in a lot of, like, hardcore bands and stuff around town and designed a lot of flyers for him and things like that. So maybe he thinks that it's another type of performance, which will be exciting and exhilarating, but I don't think he understands that I'm just sitting in the back of my basement with a bunch of blankets hanging on the walls in one really dim lamp, it's a 15-watt bulb that I got from my sister. Uh, 
it's weirdly humid still down here, and he's just going to sit on the other end of the table while I read, <laughs> which seems really weird. Uh, it's one thing to imagine that maybe someone's listening to this while driving in their car or doing dishes or something, but then I'm just sort of background noise and not really anything to really pay attention to if that's what you're into. That seems weird that you download a podcast that you just don't care what you're listening to. But this person wants to sit there and see me doing it physically in front of him with all my twitching and arm flyings around. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. I have this feeling that uh, it's going to be a thing where after this weekend he'll never talk to me again. And then Sunday... I have a white trash party to go to. People from my hometown are having some sort of get-together, and I've been invited, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of drinking. Oh, well. As the French say, cherchez la femme, which I've been told means, so goes the lady. Though I've been told by people that actually speak French that it just means find the woman. Uh, more apt would be Latin. Noli mi tangere which means don't touch me. And that's it for all the foreign I know. Uh, this is what you get when my life is uh, really not very exciting this week. So let's dive into the story. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you and maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds. The cars outside the window. The creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. So where did we leave off with Chapter 7, The Bishop's Vision? Uh, the bishop was invited to speak in front of a group of rich people. And uh, he gave an impassioned speech about putting intentions into action. Uh, and as I've said before, it was the closest thing to actually caring about a character in the story, and I felt kind of bad for him that he was trying to take what he's learned from his walk through hell with Ernest, that apparently Ernest did in his off time when he wasn't hanging around Avis's dad's house, and uh, tried to still sculpt his existing beliefs around it. And, um, and he was a broken man, that couldn't perform in front of these skeptical rich. Uh, one thing that didn't help was, in his madness, he decided to pick up professional women uh, and just get them in his broham and take them back to his palace or his home that he actually bragged about <clears throat> how much he paid for it. Uh, there's a couple things that are wrong with that. 
he thinks that prostitutes are just kind of wandering around hoping somebody will save them. I can't imagine that's really reality. Uh, we've all seen the uh, stripper with a heart of gold. Uh, we've learned that they're, they have their own motivations and drives. They have their own agency that has nothing to do with bishops saving them and their brohams. Uh, he tried to speak truth to the rich, but they were either aghast or mocked him. Uh, Ernest afterwards pointed out that absolutely nothing that he said would be reported in the press, which is interesting because during that time, uh, the press was considered too conservative. And I remember everyone thinking that back in like the 80s and early 90s. Now the press is too liberal. So it gets that stamp. And so the idea being that the, the conservative press of its time uh, was just not going to report anything that he said because it was just too truthful. Uh, and of course, Ernest is always right. And uh, But they would report what was said against him. Which, if you think about it, in a way, this book is kind of doing the same thing, only literally telling you one side of someone's argument. Uh, we never hear counter-arguments. Uh, we also found out that there are insanity experts in the Napa Asylum. And um, insanity experts is a term I've never heard before. Seems a little weird. Uh, and the best quote of that chapter was... Daily Press, Daily Suppressage, which was pretty amazing. Um, there's been a backlash I've been noticing online against classic literature. Uh, things like The Great Gatsby, that would be one where it was a book that wasn't very good and wasn't doing well, but World War II started and all of the sailors and stuff were given copies uh, for free. And so they sat around reading about it or reading it and talking about it and stuff. And uh, the book kind of gained fame just by, you know, sheer force of people being bored and having nothing else to read. Uh, and that's one of the biggest complaints is that it's not a good story and it's not well written, but it just kind of gained traction. Um, this is where I'm actually kind of believing that theory a little bit <laughs> because so far I'm not impressed with what I'm reading. We are seven chapters in and all it has been is just one guy being perfect and right all the time and everyone else being idiots. And, uh, it's all about arguments. I don't know. I can't let it go. It's bothering me. So let's just go on to chapter eight. Maybe I'm just being too hard on it. Uh, maybe this is just kind of the weird, awkward beginning and the, the story is going to pick up and really take off because there's like 20 chapters or something, so we're not even halfway through yet. So here we go. Chapter 8. The Machine Breakers. It was just before Ernest ran for Congress on the socialist ticket that Father gave what he privately called his... Profit and loss dinner. <laughs> I see what you did there. Ernest called it the dinner of the machine breakers. Because everyone stinks and he's better and he's going to rename your jokey thing. In point of fact, it was merely a dinner for businessmen. Small businessmen, of course. 
I doubt if one of them was interested in any business, the total capitalization of which exceeded a couple of hundred thousand dollars. They were truly representative middle-class businessmen. There was Owen of Silverberg Owen and Company, a large grocery firm with several branch stores. We bought our groceries from them. There were both partners of the big drug firm of Coalt and Washburn and Mr. Asmunson. Asmus, Asmus, Asmussen, okay. The owner of a large granite quarry in Contra Costa County. And there were many similar men, owners or part owners in small factories, small businesses and small industries, small capitalists in short. They were shrewd-faced, interesting men, and they talked with simplicity and clearness. Their unanimous complaint was against the corporations and trusts. Their creed was, bust the trusts. All oppression originated in these trusts, and one and all told the same tale of woe. They advocated government ownership of such trusts as the railroads and telegraphs and excessive income taxes graduated with ferocity to destroy large accumulations. Likewise, they advocated as a cure for local ills, municipal ownership of such public utilities as water, gas, telephones, and street railways. Especially interesting was Mr. Asmussen's narrative of his tribulations as a quarry owner. He confessed that he never made any profits out of his quarry, and this in spite of the enormous volume of business that had been caused by the destruction of San Francisco by the big earthquake. For six years, the rebuilding of San Francisco had been going on, and his business had quadrupled and octupled. <laughs> and yet, he was no better off. The railroad knows my business just a little better than I do, he said. It knows my operating expenses to a cent, and it knows the terms of my contracts. How it knows these things, I can only guess. It must have spies in my employ. It must have access to the parties to all my contracts. For look you, when I place a big contract... Terms of which favor me a goodly profit, the freight rate from my quarry to market is promptly raised. No explanation is made. The railroad gets my profit. Under such circumstances, I have never succeeded in getting the railroad to reconsider its raise. On the other hand, when there have been accidents, increased expenses of operating or contracts with less profitable terms, I have always succeeded in getting the railroad to lower its rate. What is the result? Large or small, the railroad always gets my profits. What remains to you over and above, Ernest interrupted to ask, would roughly be the equivalent of your salary as a manager. Did the railroad own the quarry? The very thing, Mr. Asmussen replied. Only a short time ago I had my books gone through for the past ten years. I discovered that for those ten years, my gain was just equivalent to a manager's salary. The railroad might just as well have owned my quarry, quarry and hired me to run it. But with this difference, Ernest laughed, <laughs> the railroad would have you assume all the risk 
which you so obligingly assumed for it. Very true, Mr. Asmussen answered sadly. Having let them have their say, Ernest began asking questions right and left. He began with Mr. Owen. You started a branch store here in Berkeley about six months ago? Yes, Mr. Owen answered. And since then I've noticed that three little corner groceries have gone out of business. Was that your branch store the cause of it? Mr. Owen affirmed with a complacent smile. They had no chance against us. Why not? We had greater capital. With a large business, there is always less waste and greater efficiency. And your branch store absorbed these profits, oops, the profits of the three small ones, I see. But tell me, what became of the owners of the three stores? One is driving a delivery wagon for us. I don't know what happened to the other two. Ernest turned abruptly on Mr. Colwalt. You sell a great deal at cut rates. What have become of the owners of the small drug stores that you forced to the wall? One of them, Mr. Haasfurther, has charged now of our prescription department, was the answer. And you absorb the profits they have been making, surely. That is what we are in business for. And you, Ernest said suddenly to Mr. Asmussen, you are disgusted because the railroad has absorbed your profits? Mr. Asmussen nodded. What you want is to make profits yourself. Again, Mr. Asmussen nodded. Out of others? There was no answer. Out of others, Ernest insisted. That is the way profits are made, Mr. Asmussen replied curtly. And then the business game is to make profits out of others and to prevent others from making profits out of you. That's it, isn't it? Ernest had to repeat his question before Mr. Asmussen gave an answer. And then he said, Yes, that's it. Except that we do not object to the others making profits so long as they are not ex extortionate. By extortionate, you mean large. Yet you do not object to making large profits yourself. Surely not. And Mr. Asmussen amiably confessed to the weakness. There was one other man who was quizzed by Ernest at this juncture, a Mr. Calvin, who had once been a great dairy owner. Some time ago, you were fighting the Milk Trust, <laughs> Ernest said to him, and now you are in Grange politics. Grange? Grange. All right. How did it happen? Oh, I haven't quit the fight, Mr. Calvin answered, and he looked belligerent enough. I'm fighting the trust on the only field where it's possible to fight, the political field. Let me show you. A few years ago, we hmm, dairymen had everything our own way. But you competed among yourselves, Ernest interrupted. Yes, that was what kept the profits down. We did try to organize, but independent dairymen always broke through us. Then came... The Milk Trust. Financed by surplus capital from Standard Oil, Ernest said. Yes, Mr. Calvin acknowledged. But we did not know it at the time. Its agents approached us with the club. Come in and be fat, was their proposition. Or stay out and starve. Most of us came in. Those that didn't, hmm, starved. 
Oh, it paid us at first. Uh, milk was raised a cent a quart. One quarter of this cent came to us. Three quarters of it went to the trust. Then milk was raised another cent. Only we didn't get any of that cent. Our complaints were useless. The trust was in control. We discovered that we were pawns. Finally, the additional quarter of that cent was denied us. Then the trust began to squeeze us out. What could we do? We were squeezed out. There were no dairymen, only a milk trust. But with milk, two cents higher, I think you should have been... Com you should have competed. Well, I screwed that up. Ernest suggested slyly. So we thought we tried it. Mr. Calvin paused a moment. It broke us. The trust could put milk upon the market more cheaply than we. It could sell, still, at a slight profit. When we were selling at an actual loss, I dropped $50,000 in that venture. Most of us went bankrupt. The dairymen were wiped out of existence. I kind of want to highlight the dairymen were wiped out of existence. I wonder if it'll let me do that. I want somebody else to read this book, just as we have been, and you see popular highlights from, like, 12 people. And I want someone to see just that line, the dairymen were wiped out of existence with one highlighter. So let's see if we can do that here on the Kindle. Okay, there we go. All right, it's been highlighted. So now somebody else will see that one weirdo highlighted the dairymen were wiped out of existence. Oh, look at that. I uh, even just shared it on Twitter. I can post the quota. The internet's fantastic, and that is a completely useful uh, thing to have on the Kindle. So the trust took your profits away from you, Ernest said, and you've gone into politics in order to legislate the trust out of existence and get the profits back? Mr. Calvin's face lightened up. That is precisely what I say in my speeches to the farmers. That's our whole idea in a nutshell. And yet the trust produces milk more cheaply than could the independent dairyman, Ernest, and queried. Uh, why shouldn't it? With the splendid organization and new machinery, its large capital makes possible? There is no discussion, Ernest answered. It certainly should, and furthermore, it does. Mr. Calvin here launched out into a political speech and exposition of his views, which we don't get to hear Dewey. Yep, this is what I was complaining about because I'm being like a weird nitpicky guy, but it's happening again. He was warmly followed by a number of the others, and the cry of all was to destroy the trusts. Poor, simple folk, Ernest said to me in an undertone. They see clearly as they as far as they see, but they see only to the ends of their noses. A little later, he got the floor again, and in his characteristic way, controlled it for the rest of the evening. Oh, God. <laughs> I have listened carefully to all of you, he began, which we never got to listen carefully to. I, I can't give this up. I don't know why. I'm harping on it. And I see plainly that you played the business game in orthodox fashion. Life sums itself up to you in profits. You have a firm and abiding belief that... You were created for the sole purpose of making profits. Only there is a hitch. 
In the middle of your own profit-making, along comes the trust and takes your profits away from you. This is a dilemma that interferes somehow with the aim of creation. And the only way out, as it seems to you, is to destroy that which takes from you your profits. I have listened carefully, and there is only one name that will uh, epitomize you. I shall call you that name. You are... Machine Breakers. Wait, oh, so he redubbed the evening with this title and then slipped it into one of his speeches. Do you know that a what a Machine Breaker is? Let me tell you, in the 18th century, in England, man and woman wove cloth on hand looms in their own cottages. It was a slow, clumsy, and costly way of weaving cloth. This cottage system of manufacture. Along came the steam engine and labor-saving machinery. A thousand looms assembled in a large factory and driven by a central engine wove cloth vastly more cheaply than could the cottage weavers on their hand looms. Here in the factory was combination. And before it, competition faded away. Did I say combination instead of competition? Let's see what I'm supposed to say there. No, combination. And before it, competition faded away. The men and women who had worked the hand looms for themselves now went into the factories and worked the machine looms. Not for themselves, but for the capitalist owners. Furthermore, little children went to work on the machine looms at lower wages and displaced the men. This made hard times for the men. Their standard of living fell. They starved. And they said it was all the fault of the machines. Therefore, they proceeded to break the machines. They did not succeed, and they were very stupid. Yet you have not learned their lesson. Here, you, a century and a half later, trying to break machines... By your own confession, the trust machines do the work more efficiently and more cheaply than you can. That is why you cannot compete with them, and yet you would break those machines. You are even more stupid than the stupid workmen of England. And while you maunder about restoring competition, the trusts go on destroying you. One and all... You tell the same story, the passing away of competition and the coming on of combination. You, Mr. Owen, destroyed competition here in Berkeley when you, your branch store drove the three small groceries out of business. Your combination was more effective, yet you... Am I saying this? It is, the word is combination. It just doesn't make any sense the way he's using it. But olden times... Yet you feel the pressure of other combinations on you, the trust combinations, and you cry out. It is because you are not a trust. If you were a grocery trust for the whole United States, you would be singing another song. And the song would be... Blessed are the trust. And yet again, not only is your small combination not a trust... But you are aware yourself of its lack of strength. You are beginning to divine your own end. You feel yourself and your branch stores a pawn in the game. 
You see the powerful interests rising and growing more powerful day by day. You feel their mailed hands descending upon your profits and taking a pinch here and a pinch there. The railroad trust, the oil trust, the steel trust, the coal trust, and you know that in the end uh, they will destroy you, take away from you the last percent of your little profits. You, sir, are a poor gamester. <laughs> when you squeezed out the three small groceries here in Berkeley by virtue of your superior combination, you swelled out your chest, talked about efficiency and enterprise, and sent your wife to Europe on the profits you had gained by eating up the three small groceries. Oh, Europe trip. It is dog eat dog, and you ate them up. But on the other hand, you are being eaten up in turn by the bigger dogs. Wherefore, you squeal. And what I say to you is true of all of you at this table. You are all squealing. You are all playing the losing game, and you are all squealing about it. But when you squeal, you don't state the situation flatly as I have stated it. Again, he's perfect. And we haven't heard any of their statements. We just heard his you don't say that you like to squeeze profits out of others and that you are making all the row because others are squeezing your profits out of you. No, you are too cunning for that. You say something else. You make small capitalist political speeches such as uh, Mr. Calvin made. What did, what, what did he say? Here are a few of the phrases I caught. Oh, we actually get to hear a snippet of what somebody else said. Our original principles are all right. What this country requires is a return to fundamental American methods. Free opportunity for all. The spirit of liberty in which this nation was born. Let us return to the principles of our forefathers. When he says eh, free opportunity for all, he means free opportunity to squeeze profits, which freedom of opportunity is now denied him by the great trusts. And the absurd thing about it is that you have repeated these phrases so often that you believe them. You want opportunity to plunder your fellow men in your own small way, but you hypnotize yourselves into thinking you want freedom. You are piggish and acquisitive, but the magic of your phrases leads you to believe that you are patriotic. Your desire for profits, which is sheer selfishness, you metamorphose into altruistic solicitude for suffering humanity. Come on now, right here amongst ourselves, and be honest for once. Look at the look at look the matter in the face, and state it in all in direct terms. I'm just screwing all this up. There were flushed and angry faces at the table, and, and with all a measure of awe. They were a little frightened at this smooth-faced young fellow and the swing and smash of his words and his dreadful trait of calling a spade a spade. Mr. Calvin promptly replied, And why not, he demanded. Why can we not return to the ways of our fathers when this republic was founded? You have spoken much truth, Mr. Everhard, unpalatable though it has been. But here, amongst ourselves, let us speak out. Let us throw off all disguise and accept the truth as Mr. Everhard has flatly stated it. It is true 
that we smaller capitalists are after profits, and that the trusts are taking our profits away from us. It is true that we want to destroy the trusts in order that our profits may re- remain to us. And why can we not do it? Why, why not? I say, why not? Ah, now we have come to the gist of the matter. Gist? Gist of the matter. Ernest said with a pleased expression, I'll try to tell you why not. Though the telling will be rather hard. You see, you fellows have studied business, and in a small way, but you have not studied social evolution at all. You are in the midst of a transition stage now in economic evolution, but you do not understand it, and that's what causes all the confusion. Why cannot you return? Because you can't. You can no more make water run up the hill than you can cause the tide of economic evolution to flow back in its channel along the way it came. Joshua made the sun stand still upon uh, Gibbon. Gibbon? Gibbon? But you would outdo Joshua. You would make the sun go backward in the sky. You would have time retraced steps from noon to morning. In the face of labor-saving machinery of organized production, uh, the increased efficiency of combination, you would set the economic sun back a whole generation or so to the time when there were no great capitalists, no great machinery, no railroads. A time when a host of little capitalists warred with each other in economic anarchy and when production was primitive, wasteful, unorganized, and costly. Believe me, Joshua's task was easier, and he had Jehovah to help him, but God has forsaken you, small capitalists. Uh, The sun of the small capitalists is setting. It will never rise again, nor is it in your power even to make it stand still. You are perishing. And you are doomed to perish utterly from the face of society. This is the fiat of evolution. It is the word of God. Combination is stronger than competition. Primitive man was a puny creature hiding in the crevices of the rocks. He combined and made war upon his carnivorous enemies. They were competitive beasts. Primitive man was a competitive beast. (laughs) Because of it, he rose up to primacy over all the animals. Uh, And man has been achieving greater and greater combinations ever since. It is combination versus competition. A thousand centuries long struggle in which competition has always been worsted. Worsted? Whoso enlists on the side of competition perishes. But the trusts themselves arose out of competition, Mr. Calvin interrupted. Very true, Ernest answered. And the trusts themselves destroyed competition. That, by your own word, is why you are no longer in the dairy business. The first laughter of the evening went around the table, and even Mr. Calvin joined in the laugh against himself. And now... 
While we are on the trusts, Ernest went on, let us settle a few things. I shall make certain statements. And if you disagree with them, eh, speak up. Silence will mean agreement. It is not true that a machine loom will weave more cloth and weave more cheaply than a hand loom. He paused, but nobody spoke up, which means he wins. It is not then highly irrational to break the machine loom and go back to the clumsy and more costly hand loom method of weaving. Heads nodded in acquiescence. It is not... Is it not true that combination known as a trust produces more efficiently and cheaply than can a thousand competing small concerns? Still, no one objected. Then, is it not irrational to destroy that cheap and efficient combination? No one answered for a long time. Then, Mr. Kowalt spoke. What are we to do then, he demanded. To destroy the trusts is the only way we can see to escape their domination. Ernest was all a fire and aliveness <laughs> on the instant. I'll show you another way, he cried. Let us not destroy those wonderful machines that produce efficiently and cheaply. Let us uh, control them. Let us profit by their efficiency and cheapness. Let us run them for ourselves. Let us oust the present owners of the wonderful machines and let us own the wonderful machines ourselves. That, gentlemen, is socialism. A greater combination than the trusts. A greater economic and social combination than any that has as yet appeared on the planet it is in line with evolution. We meet combination with greater combination. It is the winning side. Come on over with us socialists and play on the winning side. Sorry, I shouted right in the microphone with that one. There arose dissent. There was a shaking of heads and mutterings arose. All right, then. You prefer to be anachronisms, Ernest laughed. You prefer to play atavistic roles. The O in rolls has a little, a little hat on it, a little arrow pointing up. It's not a schwa. So is it rolls? I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce that. Let's see if we have an option. We have no option. All right. You are all doomed to perish as all atavisms perish. Have you ever asked what will happen to you in greater... Combinations than even the present trusts arise? Have you ever considered where you will stand when the great trusts themselves combine into the combination? Well, I have got to understand how he's using combination in this entire speech. It just seems so weird to me. Uh, the greater trusts themselves combine into the combination of combinations. I'm dying. Into the social, economic, and political trust... He turned abruptly and irrelevantly upon Mr. Calvin. Tell me, Ernest said, if this is not true, you are compelled to form a new political party because the old parties are in the hands of the trusts. The chief obstacle to your grange propaganda is the trusts. 
Behind every obstacle you encounter, every blow that smites you, every defeat that you receive is the hand of the trust. Is it not so? Tell me. Jesus. This chapter's going on forever. Mr. Calvin sat in uncomfortable silence. Go ahead. Uh, actually, I highlighted that too. I was highlighting it for my own good because I took a little break. Um, but now it's just out there in the ether where someone's going to see that one person highlighted that. Go ahead, Ernest encouraged. It is true, Mr. Calvin confessed. We captured the state legislature of Oregon and put through splendid protective legislation. And it was vetoed by the governor, who was a creature of the trusts. We elected a governor of Colorado, and uh, the legislature refused to permit him to take office twice. We have passed a national income tax, and each time the Supreme Court smashed it is unconstitutional. The courts are in the hands of the trust. We, the people, do not pay our judges sufficiently. But there will come a time, Dash, when the combination, the word again, of the trust will control all legislation, then the combination of the trust Will itself be the government? Ernest interrupted. I have to look again. It's the word combination. I keep thinking, like, I've got to be mispronouncing this. It's got to be some other word, but it's just the combination. Never! Exclamation point. Never! Exclamation point. Were the cries that arose. Everyone was excited and belligerent. Tell me, Ernest demanded. What will you do when such a time comes? We will rise in our strength, Mr. Admison cried. And many voices backed his decision. That will be civil war, Ernest warned them. So be it! Civil war, was Mr. Aspison's answer. His unfortunate name, getting so worked into a lather. With the cries of all the men at the table behind him, we have not forgotten the deeds of our forefathers. For our liberties, we are ready to fight and die. Ernest smiled. Do not forget, he said, that we have tacitly agreed that liberty in your case, gentlemen, means liberty to squeeze profits out of others. The table was angry now, fighting angry, but Ernest controlled the tumult, tumult, and made himself heard. One more question. When you rise in your strength, remember the reason for your rising will be that the government is in the hands of the trusts. Therefore, against your strength, the government will turn the regular army, the navy, the militia, the police. In short, the whole organized war machinery of the United States, where will your strength be then? Dismay sat on their faces, and before they could recover, Ernest struck again. Do you remember... Not so long ago, when our regular army was only 50,000. Year by year, it has been increased, until today it is 300,000. Again he struck. Nor is that all. While you diligently pursued that favorite phantom of yours called Prophets, and moralized about that favorite fetich, F-E-T-I-C-H, fetish of yours, not fetish, but okay, called competition, 
Even greater and more direful things have been accomplished by combination. There is the militia. It is our strength, cried Mr. Kowalt. With it, we would repel the invasion of the regular army. Would you go into the militia yourself, was Ernest's retort, and be sent to Maine or Florida or the Philippines or anywhere else to drown in blood your own comrades, civil warring for their liberties, while from Kansas or Wisconsin or any other state, your own comrades would go into the militia and come here to California to drown in blood uh, your own civil warring. Now they were really shocked. And they sat wordless until Mr. Owen murmured. I'm going to do a murmur now. We would not go into the militia. That would settle it. We would not be so foolish. Ernest laughed outright. (laughs) You do not understand the combination uh, that has been affected. You could not help yourself. You would be drafted in the militia. There is such a thing as civil law, Mr. Owen insisted. Not... When the government suspends civil law, in that day when you speak of rising in your strength, your strength would be returned against yourself into the militia you would go willy-nilly. Habeas corpus. I heard someone mutter just now, instead of habeas corpus, you would get into postmortems. I love that somebody in the office or somebody in the uh, the group or whatever just goes, uh, habeas corpus. Like, <laughs> and then he's like, I heard habeas corpus. If you refused to go to the militia or to obey after you were in, you would be tried by drumhead, court-martial, and shot down like dogs. It is the law. It is not the law, Mr. Calvin asserted positively. There is no such law, young man. You have dreamed all this. Why, you spoke of sending the militia to the Philippines. That is unconstitutional. The Constitution especially states that the militia cannot be sent out of the country. What's the Constitution got to do with it, Ernest demanded. The courts interpret the Constitution, and the courts, as Mr. Asmussen agreed, are the creatures of the trusts. Besides, it is, as I've said, the law. It has been the law for years, for nine years, gentlemen. That... We can be drafted into the militia? Mr. Calvin asked incredulously. They cannot shoot us by drumhead court-martial if if we refuse. Yes, Ernest answered. Precisely that. How is it that we have never heard of this law? My father asked. And I could see that it was likewise new to him. For two reasons, Ernest said. First, there has been no need to enforce it. If there had, you'd have heard of it soon enough. And secondly, the law was rushed through Congress and the Senate secretly, with practically no discussion. Of course, the newspapers made no mention of it. Conservative newspapers. But we socialists knew about it. We published it in our own papers. But you never read our papers. I still insist you are dreaming, Mr. Calvin said stubbornly. The country would have never permitted it. But the country did permit it, Ernest replied. And as for my dreaming, he put his hand in his pocket and drew out a small pamphlet. Tell me if if this looks like dream stuff, 
<laughs> he opened it up and began to read, Section 1, be it enacted, and so forth, and so forth, that the militia sh- shall consist of every able-bodied male citizen of the respective states, territories, and districts of Columbia who is more than 18 and less than 45 years of age. Section 7, that any officer or enlisted man, remember, Section 1, gentlemen, you are all enlisted men, that any enlisted man of the militia who shall refuse or neglect to present himself to such mustering, officer upon being called forth as herein prescribed, shall be subject to trial by court-martial, and shall be punished as such court-martial shall direct. Section 8. The court-martial for the trial of officers or men of the militia shall be composed of militia officers only. Section 9. That the militia, when called into the actual service of the United States, shall be subject to the same rules and articles of war as the regular troops of the United States. There you are, gentlemen, American citizens, and fellow, fellow militiamen. Nine years ago, we socialists thought that law was aimed against labor, but it would seem that it was aimed against you, too. Congressman Wiley, in the brief discussion that was permitted, said that the bill provided for a reserve force to take the mob by the throat. You're the mob, gentlemen, and protect at all hazards life, liberty, and property. And in the same t- or in the time to come, when you rise in your strength, remember that you will be rising against the property of the trusts and the liberty of the trusts, according to the law to squeeze you. Your teeth are pulled, gentlemen. Your claws are trimmed. In the day you rise in your strength, toothless and clawless, you will be as harmless as an army of clams. I don't believe it, Kowalt cried. There is no such law. It's a canard got up by you socialists. The bill was introduced in the House of Representatives on July 30th, 1902, was the reply. It was introduced by Representative Dick of Ohio. It was rushed through. It was passed unanimously by the Senate on January 14th, 1903, and just seven days afterwards was approved by the President of the United States. Oh, is that the end of the chapter? Oh, thank God. Guys, what did I just read? I have no idea. It's been a wash of one-sided arguments just going on for page after page after page. I'm burnt out. I'm exhausted. This is too much socialism to take in. Uh, what did we learn here? Uh, We learned that You can get up and talk in front of a bunch of small businessmen and uh, the word trust is used a lot in tandem with the word combinations and almost none of it makes any sense. You can learn that small businessmen, which should be the enemy of Ernest because they're forcing, like the grocery store is forcing out all the smaller grocery stores. Uh, they He's riled them up into revolution. And as soon as they're riled up in a revolution, he explains to them that there's a militia out there waiting to kill all of them. 
and they uh, get their hopes up, they get their hopes dashed by perfect, perfect earnest. And I guess that's kind of pretty much the entire chapter. Just a big speech by Ernest and the word combinations thrown around loosely. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I didn't. I'm really hoping for the story to pick up at some point. Um, maybe we learn a little bit more about Avis. Can we learn some more about Ernest? What was his childhood like? What drove him to be this annoying? Uh, maybe some of the rich people in the audience that he's shouting at could, ex you know, we'd learn a little bit more about them. I don't know. Just something, anything. It, is this entire book just nothing but chapter after chapter after chapter of him giving speeches where he's always right? I don't know. Where's the conflict? Uh, I'm going to go to bed. But I hope you uh, come back and suffer through this with me. Actually, now that I say that, maybe this story is genius, and maybe he is the writer that is celebrated for a good reason. Uh, we're being forced to travel through this entire thing, as painful as it is. Uh, much like the priest had to travel through hell by Ernest's hand when he wasn't over at Avis's house eating all her bologna. I'm tempted to skip ahead and skim over a couple chapters just to find out if this story goes anywhere. Uh, we've had exposition for eight chapters, and the exposition isn't an even like normal exposition. It's just the exposition of how Ernest is so amazing and unstoppable. Uh, I'm just hoping that there's something happens. It's supposed to be a, a story of intrigue. Where's the uh, the pre-Orwellian aspect of this? I have no idea yet, but it better be there. Now, I won't look ahead, because if I don't see what I like, I'm just going to read this with a heavy heart. Until next time, I have been obediently yours, Glenn Nuzzles. <laughs>